What I'd like to speak about tonight is uh, the topic of insight. And given that we're engaged in what is known as insight meditation, rather an important topic. And really the, the practice of insight meditation comes out of the recognition, out of the understanding that in fact that there are realms and areas where in our lack of understanding, our lack of clear seeing of how things are, gives rise to suffering, gives rise to unnecessary pain and a sense of dissatisfaction in life. And so our practice is very much an exploration of what these areas of understanding are and an exploration of what is possible for us to understand. Now the, the first area, the first realm of understanding which we find ourselves exploring in our practice is often the area of what we could call personal insight. We could perhaps also describe it as self-knowledge. Getting to actually know what goes on within our minds and our hearts. That we start to see as we sit and as we watch the, the stories that arise from our past, the reactions that occur in the present. And that we see there's a, a very clear way in which the impact of our personal history, of the experiences we have had in the past, has an effect in the present on our actual experience here and now. And for each person, this, in a way, self-knowledge and the understandings that need to come within it are somewhat different, that we all have a rather individual and unique story. We have all had a particular history which has had its effect upon us. And it is perhaps not dissimilar, but is certainly not identical to anyone else's. And what we see at times as we observe is that there can be very strong patterns, impulses and tendencies that we find arising out of us, giving rise to particular reactions and ways of responding or dealing with situations. And sometimes we experience this as a compulsive power as a reactive mind that seems at times to carry us into places which we do not wish to be, into actions that we actually regret and that we at times do not seem to have much control over this process. We find we get lost in it and carried away by it. And as a result of not understanding what goes on in that process and not understanding how to skillfully deal with that process, we experience a lot of pain and suffering that is not necessarily required of us. And so it's rather important for us to understand, to explore and get to know what it is that pushes our buttons, what it is that we are vulnerable or sensitive to. And we may 
also find it important, and for most of us it is important, to also get to know what nourishes us, what nurtures us, what actually supports our well-being, which for one may be quite different than for another. And the patterns and the, the habits that are there that are established by our history are not always bad, are not always harmful. We shouldn't look at them as such, but really something to understand. And I, I had a rather interesting experience when I was sitting a, a three-month retreat in America, um, I think it was last year or the year before, and um, at one point someone joined the retreat, and it was in the uh, east coast of America, it was very cold in December, there's sort of several feet of snow on the ground, and someone came in and they had joined the retreat and they had these very thin and holy socks, and they were walking on the bare boards of the floor, and immediately I found myself overwhelmed by the wish to give them my socks. Um, and it was kind of interesting because I just felt so much wanting to give this person some socks. And it might seem like, you know, not an inappropriate response. And it's not that it was, but what I realised was that for all my life I've suffered from cold feet. And to see someone else wearing thin socks on a cold day was almost unbearable for me to see in another. And so the strong wish to want to give something to keep their feet warm. Of course, we also notice that some of the tendencies, some of the patterns lead us to actions which we're not so pleased with or we don't feel so happy with in some way that we can see that there are things that we're afraid of, that when we in some way are threatened, we react in forms of activity, perhaps anger, perhaps through running away, that leave us feeling disconnected, that leave us feeling dissatisfied with what has occurred. And so, in examining our, our psyche, our mind, this process which we find ourselves participant in, and sometimes it feels like victim of, what we see is that there are this collection, in a way, of habits, of tendencies, of preferences, and that they've really been generated as responses that were perhaps at some times in our life useful and perhaps continue to be, but often are no longer helpful to us, are no longer that useful for us. And that we see that some of the habits and tendencies in ways of responding to situations, to certain types of situations, that some of them lead to separation, to suffering and to conflict. And that others lead to connection, to nourishment and to a sense of well-being. And so actually examining the story of our life, looking at what goes on in the, in the stories and the patterns that reveal themselves to us as we attend, as we look at what is going on, we, we start to recognise ways of being and ways of behaving and relating that serve us and that don't. And that when we're unaware, when we're unaware of what's going on, we're simply carried away by them. We become as such a victim of this inner process. It's as though there's perhaps a row of dominoes and someone pushes the first domino and then it hits another one and another one and another one and at the end we find some response coming out of our being that we really wouldn't wish to be associated with. We really wouldn't wish to be carrying out. And 
this this process of exploration, this in a way understanding of our inner life involves an examination of our thoughts, of our emotions, of our mind states, an actual recognition of what are our preferences, what are our areas of reactivity. We do need to understand this. And when we understand them, when we see what they are, and again, for each of us they will be different, we, and we see them with a sense of clarity, we have the possibility to just acknowledge that they are there that we're not actually bound to act them out. And this seems rather surprising at first. It almost feels like we have to get rid of them. We have to stop them arising into our consciousness. The habits of distraction and fantasy, the habits of angry or fearful um, withdrawal when faced with something threatening, the habits of grasping towards that which we yearn for. And we might perhaps find ourselves fearing the criticism or the judgment of others when speaking in a circle, perhaps in the group meetings, and therefore the, the tendency, the strong pressure not to say anything, to, to not speak. And if then we actually don't speak and later we feel rather sad that that's been the case, we feel we've let ourselves down. But if we know, if we're familiar with that pattern, with that habit, we can actually just see it. We can feel it as it arises quite consciously and we don't necessarily remove it, but we remove its power simply by not acting it out, by not believing in it as being compelling and compulsive to us. And in this, in this capacity we have to accommodate it, we, what we start to see is that in accommodating it doesn't have the power to create suffering for us that the pattern may still be there, but it doesn't have the power to create suffering. And we, we get to know the kind of things which we are sensitive to. We get to know that in a certain cir circumstance we're likely to react in a certain way. So that when we go into that circumstance, such as a situation where we're asked to speak in front of others, and we know perhaps our habit is to just shut ourselves down, and it's a very common one. In fact, in a survey in America um, not so long ago, that um, in terms of what frightens you the most, that well ahead of dying was the fear of speaking in public. <laughs> and yet we see how if we recognise that, that actually it's certainly a lot less scary than dying, and it's certainly not likely to kill us. But sometimes we act as though it has that potential. And yet seeing that, knowing we're going into that situation, we can just let ourselves feel the reaction, feel the contraction, the fear that might be there, without being bound to act it out. So it's not that the response of one's body or one's mind has gone away, but one has understood how to deal with it. And in recognizing that it's likely to occur in certain situations, one is in a way forewarned and therefore forearmed in able, being able to deal with it before it perhaps becomes so large and overwhelmingly strong that we feel no choice but to run away in fear of it. So we get to see how the previous experiences we've had in our life have in a way generated areas of sensitivity. We could call them buttons. 
And sometimes we do. We're perhaps familiar with that language of someone's pushing my buttons. And that we get to see that our present experience that has some association, some relationship to the past experience which gave rise to the sensitivity. So again, using that example, the sensitivity is uh, first day at school, the teacher asks us to say something and when we open our mouth, everyone else laughs at us. And we feel really hurt by that, rejected, alienated, whatever. And ever since then, we could never speak in front of a group. And so we see coming into a group situation that it has a parallel to that previous situation where we, we experience that pain. And therefore, although we know the people are kind and sensitive amongst us that we're speaking to and that they're not going to laugh at us, we know that, and yet the fear comes by that power of association. And this applies in so many areas. And the weight of all the times we've experienced that, that pain builds up and builds up and builds up till it can seem overwhelming at times. But we see that it's just a conditioned process. This button is here. If someone pushes it, the light comes on. It's coloured red or whatever else. And we know our own patterns in that way. What for someone else is just water off a duck's back, makes no impact. For us, may be incredibly painful to experience. And equally something for us that's really no problem at all. For another, may be very fearful or threatening. And so we start to see that this process that's unfolding is just that. It's a process. It's not something we have to take so personally. It's not sort of so much a sense of me that's caught up in all of this reactivity, but it's, oh, it's like this is a system whereby when you push that, this happens. And that's just the way it is. And Yet when we recognise that, when we see that, we, we see how it's been strengthened and deepened. Those tendencies and patterns have gained so much weight, so much force by repetition, by unconsciously acting them out again and again in, very, in sort of many different variations on a similar kind of situation. And that sometimes the groove that we've worn in our very being becomes so deep that it's it seems almost impossible not to get caught up in that same reaction, that same process again. Even if we're actually sitting there watching it happening, knowing, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, whoops, I'm doing it, and then, oh no, I've done it again. And how many times have we seen that? And yet, every time we're actually able to stop and see it, even if we stop and see it, and still end up acting it out, that's better than not having seen what was happening. Because there's a, there's a kind of belief behind those patterns that somehow they serve our well-being, that running away from a threat is actually protecting us. And so long as that belief is, is still um, held on to, is, is supported by not really looking and seeing what happens when there's the threat there, we run away and rather than actually protecting ourselves, what we end up is feeling um, angry, isolated, alienated and disconnected. When we recognise that, it actually strengthens our ability quite naturally to stay present in the face of that threatening experience. And over time, every time we don't act out that pattern, when we just observe it, we just see it as it is, it starts to weaken until eventually it's not such hard work. We don't have to grit our teeth while we're looking, so to speak, in the eye of the tiger, but we just more say, oh, it just washes over. 
it just washes over. And so, with this, there's a, there's a lovely poem um, which I think expresses the, the process rather, rather nicely. And um, it's by Portia Nelson. Um, she's an American poet. Um, and I always tend to translate one of the key words in it because in America, the piece on the side of the road which you walk on is called the um, sidewalk and in this country it's called the pavement and where I come from it's called the footpath which seems rather logical to me but um, anyway I'll presume that most of you know what I'm talking about now and um, call it the uh, pavement since we're in England and the story is called the poem is called An Autobiography in Five Chapters Chapter 1 I walk down the pavement there is now I walk down a street there is a large hole in the pavement I don't see it I fall in I don't know where I am or what has happened it takes a long time to get out chapter 2 I walk down the same street there is a large hole in the pavement I pretend I don't see it I fall in I still don't know where I am or what has happened but it's not my fault (laughs) chapter 3 I walk down the same street there is a large hole in the pavement I see it I know it's there I fall in anyway it's a habit (laughs) I know exactly where I am and what has happened it is my fault and I get out straight away (laughs) chapter 4 I walk down the same street there is a large hole in the pavement I carefully walk around the side in chapter 5 I walk down a different street and I think this rather nicely captures the sense of the process of our working with different areas of our in a way self-knowledge coming to understand what we need to do to deal skillfully with the conditioning that we've experienced in our life and we can we can see that the practice really is not necessarily about just redecorating the space of our mind sometimes it it seems like we're just trying to sort of fix all these things make them all better and it could be sort of said rather like redecorating a room but in fact coming to understand how to work with what is already there is much more helpful and useful in many ways than just being able to shift the pieces around that uh, the what we perhaps call our stuff is not in itself an obstacle to freedom or to well-being that we don't need to fix it or get rid of it but merely understand how to deal with it skillfully and when it arises to actually give it attention and yet what we also see is when we're not struggling with it when we don't feel that we're caught between the two rather stark and polarized choices which is one that I've got to actually act it out when it arises that I'm compelled to follow it or that which really doesn't serve us or that the only other choice is that I've got to make it go away 
and stop it ever arising, which because we can't do that just generates a lot of struggle and conflict in itself, when we realize there's actually a third choice, which is just to acknowledge it when it arises, to observe it, to come to understand what's going on in the process and what's pushing our button and what our tendency is in that circumstance. But when that happens, what quite mysteriously can occur for us is that there's a a relaxing of our preoccupation with the inner life. There's a way in which all of that effort to make ourselves okay that just seems to go on and on because no matter what and how much we fix, there's always more to fix. We actually just start to relax about that. We see, oh yeah, there are plenty of things to attend to and we need to attend to them but we don't need to be fixated upon it. And that that we actually can just open to allowing ourselves to be. And in that being with acknowledging and including all of our personal history, our conditioning, our weaknesses and our strengths, we can start to feel a quality of calm in the midst of it all, where we're not feeling that we've got such a project. And that's really quite a relief. And that that calmness that comes in letting go of that preoccupation with our inner life, with getting it straight, with sort of softening all the sharp edges and getting rid of all the unpleasant smells and all of that that we do. When we let that go, there's there's a calmness and an ease that can come to us, which is actually very nourishing, very very connecting. And it's lovely to just allow ourselves to rest in that when it comes. And yet, that in itself is not all there is to our practice. There is always more to explore. And the first area of insight being essentially that exploration of our personal world, our personal history, our personal tendencies. And that, as I said, is unique for each one of us. We all have our own story. And yet there's the next whole realm of exploration which we find ourselves engaged with in meditation practice is really the area of understanding, of insight into the, the nature of existence itself, the whole realm of what could be called con- the conditioned world. And that the, the insights we have with regard to this, the laws and the truth of this, this realm and this world are not personal. They're not something about me or about you. They're actually universally applicable to all situations, to all things. And that the world of things is governed by rather fundamental realities that we can know, that we can understand from our own experience. And these these fundamental realities that are part of all experience for everyone, for everything, are something that we do observe, we do actually come in contact with. And the first reality, the first of these um, truths of the conditioned world is the truth of change, anicca, as it is said in the, the language of the Buddha. Change, that all things come and go, that all experiences rise and pass, and the very breath that we observe speaks this to us loudly and clearly in every moment. The mind that focuses on the breath for one moment and then in the next moment is lost somewhere else is equally telling us that things arise and pass when we observe that reality. We often 
however, come to things from the view of permanence. We have either the wish or the belief that things would be or would stay as they are. And that experience is something, that, that view is something that generates a conflict with the way things are. Because our body, our mind, as we observe it, as we look at the sensations, as we experience the flows of thinking, of moods, of emotion, of sounds, what we actually experience is something that keeps changing. Whatever it is that you experience might seem totally different from what everyone else experienced today, but the reality that it kept changing would be common for each one of us. Even if it stays for a period of time, even within that there are often subtle changes that we, <coughs> that we aren't noticing. And we see that our life is in flux. The world is in process and moving. And that so much of our tendency and our habit of grasping at experience, of wanting to keep the pleasurable, is coming out of this misconception that it's possible for things to be permanent and that we grasp at things trying to keep them to stay. And yet in our very grasping, we experience the suffering of rope burn when a piece of rope is pulled through your hand and you try and hold on to it. Just as our experiences constantly are being born and are dying in each moment and moving on, when we grasp not understanding the truth of impermanence, of change, we experience great pain and suffering. And equally, when there are unpleasant, when there are painful experiences there for us, and the reaction of aversion occurs, of pushing it away, of fighting it, it's somewhat being fed by a view and a belief, or perhaps a fear, that this which I don't like, this which is painful or hurtful to me, is here forever. And it's not going away. And therefore we start to try and somehow make it go away. Forgetting, failing to understand, that in fact, as it was its nature to arise, so too it is its nature to pass. And that really, we can't force it to do that in any way other than its own nature will make happen. That we can experience this changing phenomena directly in each moment, when we observe the sensations of pain, perhaps in our knee, if we really look and see, we see that there's a sharp, intense pain in one moment, in one place, and then it moves, perhaps just a little bit, perhaps to somewhere else, and then it's sort of hot, and then it's sort of cold, then it's pressure. Whatever the changes we notice, they're speaking to us of this truth of impermanence. And when we understand that, when we see that clearly, we quite naturally learn to let go, to not struggle with our experience so much, not so much grasping to keep it, not so much pushing it away, because we realize that doesn't really serve. And it really doesn't make any sense in the light of understanding change. And the, the second characteristic of all things which we experience, of the, the world, we could say, is the characteristic of unsatisfactoriness. And the, the word, the Pali word for this is dukkha, which you may have heard, often translated as suffering, though I think <coughs> more usefully as unsatisfactoriness, that, that no experience, that no thing that we find in this world can give us lasting and permanent satisfaction, precisely because no thing in this world is permanent, because all things are changing, because 
the job that we like we may lose the partner that we love we may lose the mind state that we're enjoying in the sitting may and I can guarantee you will change there's no place we can find lasting satisfaction in our experience in grasping hold of a particular and giving it the weight of resting our happiness and our well-being upon it (coughs) that we see that things around us are in flux, are changing, that the world is unpredictable, that other people are not always reliable. Sometimes, of course, they are, but sometimes they're not. And equally ourselves, our inner experience, as I spoke of the other day, that our inner experience changes and we can't make it be the way we want it to. And that when we can't fix it, we can't control it, we can't even hold on to it, does it really then seem to offer any possibility, any prospect of lasting happiness. And so again, when we see this, when we start to understand that all the things that we have chased after, seeking to find happiness in them, and haven't succeeded to do so, that all these things share this common characteristic of being unable to provide us lasting satisfaction. That it's not in their nature to be able to do so. Temporarily, sure, of course. We can enjoy pleasure and sort of gratification, well-being in relationship to particular experiences, particular things. But it's never forever. And that's just the reality of it. And together, with these, con- these characteristics of change and of an inability to provide lasting satisfaction, all of the things that we experience in the world around us and within ourselves are also of the characteristic of being empty of any individual inherent self-existence, any separate sort of thingness which is uniquely belonging to that thing. This is kind of a, a difficult one for some people, most people I would say, to, to get a grasp on intellectually. So it's okay if you don't necessarily feel the concepts all make sense. But essentially, when we explore our experience and we look at what's going on, we often find a way of relating and believing that suggests that I am in some way something substantial, permanent and fixed. And equally that things around us and people outside of ourselves are equally somehow individual, separate, fixed entities. And yet, if we look at our experience, again, coming from the understanding of change which we directly experience, what we find is that everything's changing, that our very inner experience is changing, that which we most call who we are, the thoughts and the feelings and the bodily sensations that we so so habitually claim to be mine, to be who I am. When we look at them, we see that they're changing, that they're moving from one thing to another. And whose experience here of how they feel? When, when we experience a moment of happiness and we think, I am happy, and then in the next moment we're feeling depressed and we think, I am depressed. And that sense of someone who's owning that experience is so common to us. But if we really look, all we see is that one moment there is happiness. Another moment, there is depression. 
another moment there's something else. And there isn't actually anyone there who owns it. That's just another experience. That's just a way of thinking about it and talking about it. And that when we look, when we actually look very carefully, we see that everything we experience and everything that we claim to be who we are is part of a process of conditioned phenomena, of different conditions coming together and interacting to produce what we are experiencing within ourselves and what we are experiencing around us in what we call the world and what we call that which is other. But that very fact that everything is coming out of this interconnected process, this, um, in a way, relationship, this flux of relationship, and that everything we experience keeps changing, it's pointing to something rather profound about the reality of our experience, that there is no owner within ourself, and equally, that there's no separate individual thing outside of ourself to which we could say, I am me and that is other. But that actually our relationship and the connections that are there are much stronger than the apparent perceived surface differences that give rise to the idea of being separate, of being an individual. And in this context, we could look at any aspect of our experience and ask ourselves the question, as the Buddha asked of the, the nuns and the monks in his day, well, with this experience, perhaps your body, is it subject to change? Can you control what occurs? And one might ask the question, this body, okay, can I decide if this was mine, that it will stop aging, that it will be healthy from now until the day I die? We can't make such decisions about our body. And if we're not able to exert that kind of control, if it's something that's not in our control, is it meaningful to talk about it as belonging to us? Who is it that owns it? It's just a sense of ownership has no influence on it, on what happens to it. And equally our mind, our emotions and our thoughts, can we control them? Can we make them be the way we want? And if we can't, if we can't just decide that today we're going to experience ecstasy for 45 minutes, if we can't just decide that, then is it right to say that this belongs to us? Or can we really only say that we're observing something that's happening? And the habit of calling it mine is perhaps something of a mistake that has its useful social purpose but that ultimately doesn't describe what's actually going on. And what we see is that sense of ownership of all of this is what's behind, is what's underpinning all of the grasping and all of the aversion that we experience. It's always because we're trying to get it for me or protect me. And yet, when we really look inside, what is there that is that me we're trying to protect? Apart from the thought that says, it's me. It really is, honest. It's me. And that's just a thought. It's just a thought. There's not any more to it than that. It's just a belief that we've invested in and that we've colluded in with each other for what seems like all of our lifetime and perhaps many lifetimes before. Yet when we recognize and we start to sense perhaps in moments where the, the sense of self and other dissolves and we're just present in our breathing, present, looking 
at a blade of grass or a tree, that there isn't so much a sense of me and of other, but just being, just presence. And, and we realise that, that all the grasping and the solidity that goes with that sense of self is what actually holds it together. It's actually the grasping that makes it seem solid. And yet it's not. It's not solid. And that actually, when we start to recognise that, when we understand about change, when we understand that experiences, including inner experience, cannot provide us lasting satisfaction, when we start to understand that even that which seems most close to us is not really who we are, it's not really some individual entity going on in the way we so often think about it. When we start to understand that, we start to let go. We start to lose our preoccupation with this world of form, with this world of changing, fascinating, but ultimately unsatisfying experiences that keep coming and going and coming and going. And in that letting go, in that letting go of our fascination with trying to get that the way we want it to be, we open ourselves to the touch of something which is not of that world. And that the, the understanding of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness and of anatta, of the insubstantiality of any selfhood or self-existence, any independence from the rest of things, when we start to let that go and we see it's not that we in a way that that is the ultimate truth of things and sometimes in teachings we do hear people saying and saying that the truth of change is the ultimate truth of things and this is the teaching of the Buddha I don't believe that to be true and in fact the Buddha very clearly said once, in very profound words, if there was, if there was nothing other than that which is conditioned, that which is changing, that which is impermanent, then there would be no escape from that which is conditioned, that which is changing, that which is impermanent. But as there is that which is not conditioned, not subject to impermanence, an escape is seen, a freedom is seen from that realm of change. And equally sometimes one will hear the sort of the glib summary of Dharma teachings saying life is suffering, as though that's all there is to it. And life is unsatisfactory, unsatisfying. And I think the response that one of my teachers made to this concept sheds a lot of light on it when he suggested that this idea that life is suffering was something sort of generated by depressed monks. <laughs> and that really, if that was the truth, there would be no hope for us. If that was the ultimate reality of life, there would be no hope. We might as well just resign ourselves and enjoy our misery. It's not the truth of things. The Buddha said again and again, and these teachings emphasize again and again, but here using the Buddha's words, just as the taste of the four great oceans is all of one taste, the taste of salt, 
so too these teachings are all of one taste, the taste of freedom. And that as we start to let go, as we start to let go of our preoccupation with our personal story, as we start to let go of our preoccupation with this very world in which we find ourselves in, and as you just learn to rest in a simple, clear presence, in a, a vital and interested and an open seeing of just what is occurring, we start to we start to recognise, we start to see that in that not holding onto anything, the very solidity of this world is this world of form and appearance, that the solidity of it is something that is illusory, that is not true, that is something that we have created through our holding, through our grasping, and through our way of looking at it. And that in letting go of all that, we're actually left with nowhere to stand. We're left with no firm foundation on which to place our sense of what all this is. And that might be unsettling. This might be rather frightening. And yet the potential for us, the possibilities for us when we actually let go into that space are immense, are profound. That we open in that place of not holding. And these teachings could be summarized in quite simply two words. Let go. Whatever you find yourself holding to, it doesn't matter whether it's in one realm of experience or another. Wherever there is holding, let go. And in the letting go, we, we in a way create within ourselves the, the possibility, the potentiality for the touch of the deepest truth of life. And I'd like to read something Meister Eckhart wrote about this. And Meister Eckhart, the um, I think 13th century German Christian mystic, he puts it in the language of God, which I'll read, and then I'll perhaps rephrase it in terms of the language of truth, which I find for myself more resonant, but ultimately I don't feel it's actually that different. Meister Eckhart said, God must act and pour himself into you the moment he finds you ready. Don't imagine that God can be compared to an earthly carpenter who acts or doesn't act as he wishes, who can will to do something or leave it undone according to his pleasure. It is not that way with God. When and where God finds you ready, he must act and overflow into you. Just as where the air is clear and pure, the sun must overflow into it and cannot refrain from doing that. So again, truth must act and pour itself into you the moment it finds you ready. Just when and where it finds you ready, truth must act and overflow into you. Just as when the air is clear and pure, the sun cannot help but overflow into it. And in each moment in which we let go, not making any hierarchy about whether it's the holding that binds us to the habits of our personal conditioning, whether it's the, the more existential holding which is the fascination with this world of things, but wherever there is that sense of letting go, there is a creation of space, of possibility. And that there's, there's no hierarchy in which realm of understanding we are opening to. 
It's not that we're sort of doing it in order. First of all, we'll work through all the personal things, then we can perhaps get onto that sort of more existential stuff and, you know, think a bit more about anatta, whatever the heck that means, you know, selflessness. I don't really understand it, but I'll get there. And then once I've finally done that, then perhaps something more profound, more transforming may touch. It's really not like that at all. But it's just that in that moment of letting go, in any moment of letting go, the soil of our being is ripe and ready for the flowering of understanding that is within us. And it is that understanding which is truly liberating, which truly actually transforms us. So in our practice, in our exploration, to not deny or to undermine the the realm of personal work, one could say, personal understanding, to include it fully, and yet not to limit ourselves to this, not to say that this is all that it is about, because there is more, much more. And the possibilities are there for each of us, for every one of us, to discover profound and liberating truth. May all beings deepen in self-knowledge. May all beings see into the characteristics of this world 